Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Making Data Simple podcast 2020. I'm Al Martin, your host, and these are often... There's often a delay in posting, so I think this is going to go out the third or fourth week in January. But for me, it's it's Happy New Year to everybody on the on the listening today. Uh, this podcast also follows a two part episode that we just had, which was our hundred and hundredth and one episode, which featured John Cohn, which is the mad scientist. Check it out if you if you've not listened to it. With that one, it, it kind of strikes me that there's a fine line be- between genius and just being flat out crazy. <laughs> He's a genius. Make no mistake. John is great. But listen to that. It was very good. And I'm also told that this is our fourth season. I can't believe that. I think our first season was a shorter season. But we just surpassed like 400,000 listens. We we're up over 50,000 listens this year. So I just want to say another thank you to all your listeners. It's been a lot of fun. In fact, given those metrics kind of makes me a little nervous now that I think about it. But thanks again for, for listening. And as always, please reach out to me at almartintalksdata at gmail.com for any topics that you'd like to hear about. Or if the, if you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, we'd, we'd love to hear that too. So um, it's all because of the great guests that we have. And today is no different. Uh, today is becoming an annual thing, I think, to kick off the year. If I remember right, Rob, you were our first guest, uh, so you're just following the 100th episode. I can't believe we've done that many, but we have the myth, the legend, Mr. Rob Thomas, who's the general, man- general manager of IBM Data and AI. It's Data and Artificial Intelligence on. Just a quick intro, Rob holds a lot of responsibility spanning databases, integration and governance, business intelligence, planning, data science, AI tools, AI applications. He's got it all, essentially. Um I think he joined IBM in 1999 and has been straight up ever since. Got has two books that you should check out: Big Data Revolution, a second book, The End of Tech Companies. Also got a blog you want to check out: RobDThomas.com. You're you're a little bit everywhere, man. Happy New Year and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Al. Happy New Year to you. Great to be back and congratulations on the success with the podcast. I've been listening. You guys cover a lot of different topics, and I think it's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Three-time guest. You will get you a jacket when you hit five, but you're, I think, a three-time guest at this point in time. Also, my boss, just so full disclosure, so I got to be on good behavior, or at least better behavior today. Um, it's 2020. Can you believe it's 2020? You know, they, uh, as they say, the weeks are long and the years are fast. Um, so it is upon us again. Yes. So do you do anything fun over the holidays? Uh, did a lot of working. Um, but also found a little time to hang out with the family. We were in Florida for a few days, which was good. Got to take in the new Star Wars as well. So found some time to do some fun things. The new Star Wars movie or you went to like Disney? No, new Star Wars movie. What'd you think? Good, bad? Yeah, I'm totally positive. I'm not, uh, I'm not too critical. Uh, I'm not that dedicated of a fan that I can be critical of it but uh, it was a positive experience. Is there a Thomas tradition over the holidays? Is it Florida? Yes. My parents are in Florida. My wife's are as well. So they're about an hour and a half apart. So we're, we're always down there. And it's typically a mix of drinking and eating and some golf and 
maybe college football if Florida happens to play in a bowl game around that time in the summer near where we are. <laughs> Luckily, Florida's better now, and so they don't play at that time. Fantastic. Look, when we start the new year, yeah, because you got to close the quarter and everything. It's funny. I've got friends that come up to me and say, hey, you feel refreshed? I said, hell no, I don't feel refreshed. Uh, there was a lot of work, but it is a lot of fun to spend time with, with families. And, and to the, the, the point of working some over the holidays, I know we're off to a fast start. 2020 is no different. So, you know, look, you've been all over the place. We'll talk about that in just a moment uh, on, on Fox, on CNN, since the year started, et cetera are you working like the whole time? I mean, do you read, do you, do you write a lot? Do you do a lot of planning or is that mostly done before the holidays or it's just straight through? You know, I, my schedule certainly changes during the holidays, meaning I'm not really back to back in terms of meetings on the calendar. There's a lot of things that are interrupt driven, meaning if we're trying to work on deals or working with clients as we close out the year and they close out the year, there's some of that, but because the calendar is not full, it does give me a good bit of time to do some other things, which I normally fill up with a mix of reading, writing, planning, thinking about the next year. So it's certainly some downtime, which is uh, which is always a good good to have. Well, you've got a family. I got to believe you got like a room in the house or something. You, when you close the door, that means dad's reading or what? How do you find the time? Is the question. Um, you know, I get up pretty early, so. The I normally get up and work out right away. I try as a habit not to check email before I do any of that because it kind of keeps your head clear so you can think through the day. And my kids have gotten to the age now where they will sleep till noon if allowed to. And so there's always some quiet time in the morning to um, to get done anything that I want to get done. So can I can always make time. I I always tell my kids don't ever use the excuse of I don't have time because Anybody that's saying, I don't have time, what they're really saying is it's not a priority, which is fine. It's fine if it's not a priority, but don't, don't say you don't have time because we all have time. The question is, is how do we spend it? I think it must be a common thread because my kids sleep till noon just as well. Of course, they don't go to bed till like 3 a.m., but they, they, they sleep till noon just the same. So I'm working out at 5.30. What time are you working out? Uh, right in that range. I'm normally up between 5.15, 5.45, so that's normally where I start and then, then get after it. Fantastic. All right. So today we're going to discuss the future landscape of data and AI in 2020. Uh, we'll hear some predictions from Rob. I mean, that's, I guess what you do to, to start the new year. As I mentioned earlier, we, Rob has been featured on Fox business news, CNN, there's several other places. Here's how I'm going to start it. It's a little awkward, but this is what I wanted to, to start it with Rob. Um, you know, like, it's kind of like when you started on CNN, or you know, when I was watching it, it, well, both that and Fox, it strikes me that AI gets people a little bit excited, upset, maybe even it, it, it provokes them. Um, I mean, CNN started a little bit dismissive of AI to start and then warmed up to it. Fox Business started with this. They said the, ri the rise of AI could be spooky. And then they referenced Stephen Hawking suggesting AI will doom mankind. You handled it very well, by the way. But do you find that AI is pushing people's buttons right now? So first of all, when I was sitting down with the press team to kind of plan out the start of the year, I told them there's three there's three outlets we have to do. We have to do CNN, we have to do Fox Business, and we've got to do the Making Data Simple podcast. So I want you to know <laughs> you were you were in the top three, and you were actually in front of wow. CNN and Fox. It's just that they could get me on. 
before you were able to with your schedule. So I just want you to know that. Yeah, very good. Very good. <laughs> I like that I'm in the top three, but do you find that it's pushing people's buttons, the topic of AI? It seemed like it was pushing their buttons. It is. I think that's, I think that has nothing to do with AI and has everything to do with new technology because I think that's been true of every new innovation, certainly since the industrial revolution and probably before when there's new innovation and new technology, the human reaction when you don't understand something is fear. And my biggest observation is people don't really understand what AI is. And when you don't understand what something is, your reaction is always going to be fear. So I've tried to use some of these sessions just to kind of, I'd say, demystify what this is, which is it's not about self-driving cars. It's not about robots that are going to walk into the office and take our jobs. AI is it's actually much more basic. First of all, it's just computer science. It's just software. And it's about how you make better predictions. How do you automate things that you don't want to do? How do you optimize certain things that you're doing in your life or your business? That's really what it is. Now, do we get to some future where there's an artificial general intelligence? It's possible. I would, I'm not sure I'd say it's likely, um, but it's also 50 to 100 years away. So probably not going to be our issue. If you're listening to this podcast, probably not going to bother you. And so I think it's natural, but it, the way to get over that is it starts with education, meaning everybody get on the same page of what this is and what it isn't. All I got out of that is making data simple is up with CNN and Fox, which is indeed, fantastic. Indeed. <laughs> so you hear that, Megan, our producer? We're in the running now. So I, I, one more thing on that. And the speaking of the fear, and, and I was going to talk to you about this. You already hit on it. Every one of those uh, questions, and it happens to me just as well, it, it is about eliminating jobs. I guess it goes back to your, your point about being the fear. Um, I find that question troubling for different reasons because there's other questions I think that should be asked. In other words, um, jobs, putting that aside, I mean, look, everything we've seen over history, these transformations typically creates more work, but there are a ton of better questions out there. Like by example, are you concerned about companies taking your data? Are you concerned about privacy concerns? Uh, China just launched an initiative where you have to give your uh, biometrics or, or you got to give, I guess, facial recognition for to get a mobile phone. Are you worried about uh, insurance companies profiling based on the data they have? Are you worried about everyone having your DNA? Which is funny because I have people say, hey, I'm never going to give up my DNA. And then I say, well, if you're your sibling has, they've already got your DNA. So there you have it. Those are the kind of the questions I would imagine that, and maybe they're not good for sound bites. Is that it? But those are the questions that are very intriguing to me and that people should be asking if you're going to get fearful about it. The jobs question is just, to me, is left field. It, 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 I, don't even, I don't even wake up concerned about that at all. You know, hist history is always a good informer. And the same is true if you look at something like farming. I went around numbers. I believe... 1900s, there was around 20 million farming jobs um, in the U.S. Um, there's obviously much fewer now. Um, but we actually have much better food production. The farmers, the, the jobs they do is actually are dr dramatically easier now. It's not all manual labor. And we've got a ton of new jobs, whether, you know, you know running a podcast was not a job that existed in 1900. Could, couldn't even imagine somebody running a podcast as a job 
1900. And he goes on and on from social media to YouTube to Instagram. So the world is always going to change. AI is going to make people that do our job today, it's going to make them more powerful. I truly believe that. And it's going to create new jobs. It's going to reinvent how people do work. And that to me is the really optimistic side of this. Although people, you know, and certainly the media will always focus on what are the potential negatives. But I think, I think in the history of, of the world, innovation has proved to be a positive thing for, for the human race. What are you worried about? Are you worried about privacy trust? Do you have worries? Do you sleep well? What are you worried about? There is definitely a real, a real concern around doing this the right way, which gets right to the points that you highlighted on, which is around trust and how we build AI, how it's deployed, privacy, which is not just about for AI, but let's talk about data as well as a general topic. So those are real concerns because as the world becomes more digital, 5G comes in, data is everywhere. Everybody, you know, should still have the basic rights of um, privacy that we have in the, um, you know, call it the pre-data slash digital world. So I think those are real concerns. That's why we've taken a pretty proactive stance in IBM on how we think about AI fairness how we think about explainability of models, bias detection of models, and that, that those things will continue. But yeah, all of us should be concerned that we do this the right way, for sure. So one more question or one more comment on this. Um, I also find that, look, I'm an IBMer, uh, but that Watson often becomes an easy target. It's AI. When you're worried about jobs, when you're worried about something that's foreign to you, something you don't understand, it's a natural tendency to kind of say, ah, didn't get it right or didn't do this or whatever the case may be. By example, if, if Watson identifies a root cause of a health problem, just does it absolutely right, and maybe a doctor came to the same conclusion, they say, well, it's something we already knew. But it, to me, it's augmented intelligence. You know, it's, it's, it's putting the, the, the two together, that augmented intelligence with uh, an expert. Uh, and I guess if another example is, you know, carrying that a little bit further, skin cancer, by example. Doctors perform like something like nine out of 10 biopsies for every one in case of melanoma that they find. In other words, they're often guessing. And if they said, oh, we found it just the way as, um, just the same as Watson found it, I would say, hey, yeah, but a lot of times you're guessing. How many spots did you miss that Watson would have found? Uh, and in that case, by example, if you go to the lymph, if it goes to the lymphatic system, that survival rate goes from like 98% to like 16%. So, I guess the question I'm saying, I think Watson is what I've seen, and maybe I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, but it's been extremely successful. What's the truth from your vantage point? How's Watson doing? It's really been a three-act play so far. So let me kind of back up and just describe that. Act one for Watson was Jeopardy, probably one of the most visible demonstrations of AI technology ever. And that created a lot of excitement and interest. Act two was every, every business in the world, because I think almost every business came to us. The excitement from Jeopardy led to a lot of experimentation and a lot of different projects. And those were very services intensive because everybody wanted their own form of AI. They wanted something that was unique to them. 
was a lot of experimentation. And when you experiment, experiment, some things work, some things don't. That's the reality. Act three, where we are now, is the business has matured to a software business. And we've got some great products, tools that helps you build AI. If you want to build your own AI, you can come use Watson tools, applications that are designed for the line of business, whether that's for things like financial planning um, or automating customer service. And so those have really been the three acts. So it's doing tremendously well. Just to give you a couple of data points, IDC just ranked us number one in market share again. So we're by far the number one leader in terms of um, share and what's happening in the market. You look at customer references and we, we look at this data. Watson's got 600 plus public references of businesses saying we got a great outcome with Watson. The second closest competitor in the market has around 200. So Watson's 3X, uh, the number two player. So we're in a great position. Now for some of the, you know, I'll just tell you a story. Um, it's a story about fish, actually. The Many years ago, most of the cod in the world was um, caught in Alaska and then shipped to China because a lot of, um, well, most of the production and then a lot of the, the demand was in China. And the issue that they had in the first couple of years was as the cod is flying from Alaska to China, it actually becomes very mushy because it's basically just sitting in the, in the water in a cooler. And so by the time it got there, it wasn't very fresh. Um, the idea they had was to put catfish in the same bin as the cod because catfish actually feed on cod. And so what would happen is as they're flying, the catfish are basically nipping at the cod the whole time. So they're moving around the whole time. And so they were no longer mushy. They actually showed up in perfect condition because they were, um, they were working away basically the whole trip. My, my point in telling that story is that sometimes you got to have things nip at you to be at your best, to be on your best game. So as I look at kind of the, the arc of Watson, I think everything that's happened has been exactly what needed to happen for us to be where we are now. So I'm actually super grateful for, for where it's been, really happy about where it is, and even more optimistic about where it's going. Very good. Good story. Um, so pivoting, let, let's talk about where customers actually are with this. I've been hearing forever, you know, in, in every article that I look at, that industry adoption is somewhere around 20%. I know that of late, uh, you and IBM has sponsored a, a survey, I think uh, in, in concert with uh, Morning Consult, to really get a better gauge so that we can quit using that 20%. Uh, I think the survey's name was from Roadblock, Roadblock to Scale, the Global Sprint Towards AI, pulled something like more than 4,500 technology decision makers. And there were two questions it was premised on. There may be more, but two questions. One was, are companies still harboring significant reservations around introducing AI into their enterprise and operations? And number two was, are they taking set steps to upskill their talent to successfully harness the power of AI? With that survey, do we have more facts? And what have we learned? All I know is 20% today or the, the community does, 
What should they know now? Look, every, a survey is what it is. There's a sample size and what it indicates. Clearly, this recent survey indicated that adoption is much higher than we than we had seen a year ago. Whether it's from five to ten percent or twenty percent, what this survey indicates is it's closer to forty percent now, and we'll increase from here. Now, like I said, the numbers themselves it's hard to know exactly because um, it's going to be different by survey. But I think we can say pretty definitively that adoption is going mainstream. We're moving beyond experimentation. And if you look at a world that says now we're at 40%, let's say that's even off by you know 10, 10% or so, we're certainly going to be in a world where half of the businesses are adopting AI within the next year, and then it will scale from there. So that's, that's really a statement on, I'd say, people getting over some of the initial inhibitors we can talk about what those are if you'd like and starting to make real progress with AI, which I think is encouraging. I do want to talk about the inhibitors, but let me ask a question. If you, if this is Rob Thomas predicting, are we in the explosion right this second is, are we on the early side of that? I mean, when do you think that our, the landscape essentially changed where we'll be able to put a finger on it? I think this may be different in that, maybe there will never be an explosion. Um, the iPhone probably is a good example of an explosion that creates a market, meaning the smartphone. I'm not sure that's how this will play out. I think what you'll see is very consistent compounded growth over a long period of time. So I'm not sure there will ever be an explosion, but I think once you, once you start to tip the scale at 50% adoption, and then it continues to compound from there. And then the 50% that's already adopted is doing more and more. I think you're going to see this as one of these compounders that has a huge effect in the short term, medium term, and the long term. All right. Hey, by the way, as listeners, we'll put the link to the survey in the show notes, as well as links to, to Rob's uh, uh, CNN, Fox News interviews, etc. So what, what are the inhibitors? You see today, why why are clients having difficulty adopting? One we already talked about, which is trust, and that's more about just understanding that you can do AI in a responsible way. So trust has certainly been one of them. Um, another one has been skills. Most companies, their data science teams are new or small or just getting started in this in this realm, and they need they need a bigger skill base or better tools um, to really drive adoption. So trust is one, skills is two. The third one, something that you know well, is data. It's the classic problem of, can I find the data I need? Can I clean the data? Can I organize the data? Can I make my data ready for AI? Because AI is the classic garbage in, garbage out problem. If you feed it bad data, your models aren't going to be very good and your predictions are not going to be very good. So it's data, it's trust, it's skills. Those are the three issues that we've seen. And I think as people make progress on each of those, adoption continues to increase. Do you think IBM has the answer for each of those three? I'd like to think so. Uh, data Science Elite is certainly our bet for the skills piece. We've built an elite team of data scientists. Um, 
We've done over 130 engagements in the last year. This team is probably one of the most coveted assets in IBM because we can go into a client and help them get an AI success story in what is typically two to four weeks. Um, that's been our play for skills. Data, I don't think anybody knows data better than IBM, whether it's the fact that we have, you know, run most of the transactional systems in the world with things like the mainframe onto what we do around databases, data warehouses, Hadoop, MongoDB, you name it. We've got a pretty good prominence in data. And then on the trust piece, look, Watson was designed with trust in mind. And we can do the whole life cycle of how you manage models, data provenance, uh, explainability of models. So, yeah, I mean, we've really built a lot of our strategy around addressing those inhibitors because we thought that would make the difference in adoption. Do you think we will evolve faster towards holistic AI applications versus companies having their own data science teams? Or you think that will continue both for indefinitely? I mean, you know, both sides of the equation, in other words, AI apps and, and data science teams, the, the tools that clients will use, where do you think we're going to be heading there? It's a little hard to say because ultimately how people and businesses use technology will inform where this goes. The reason for this distinction between tools and applications is, is to me is more of a view of who are the consumers of AI today. And on, on one hand, you've got builders, data scientists, they want to build models. They want to build their own AI. So you've got to provide a hammer and a nail and a tape measure and a screwdriver, all the tools that somebody would need to build their own AI. You've also got a group that could care less about building anything. You know, I run a call center. I just want an application that has AI built into it so I can do my job better. Or I'm just a CFO and I need to do my planning and budgeting. I just, I just want that done and I want it done with AI because that will make it better. So you got two very different audiences and, and that's why that distinction exists today. Do those lines blur over time? Perhaps. But I think the key thing is we will always be serving different types of consumers of AI in businesses. You've been promoting Cloud Pack for Data as part, an integral part of our, our strategy, a container-based uh, platform. Where does that fit in in your mind within this strategy and how does it help the AI, uh, AI evolution? Your AI is only as good as your data. So that is, I'd say, the founding premise for, for the whole strategy around Cloud Pack for Data. Second point, the biggest problem in every company is the sprawl of data silos. Any project that comes up, you know, the first step is move a bunch of data, create a new data repository. That's why, you know, we see companies that have tens of thousands of different data silos or data repositories. Those are the two problems we want to solve. So Cloud Pack for Data is about the end of data silos and making data ready for AI. Those are the two reasons that you do it. And because of the way that we can virtualize data, connect to the data sources you have, you really start to get a single platform for managing all of your data. Over time, you can start to retire silos. There's no reason to ever create another data silo. 
those are two pretty significant business problems that we attack with Cloud Pack for Data. Can you, can you, uh, that's a great answer, by the way. Can you, this is our first opportunity to chat about the Red Hat acquisition. Now, can you talk away about the, the takeaways of our relationship over the last year and what do you expect to see in 2020? Let's kind of zoom out a little bit on the IT industry for a second. I believe two things are fundamentally true, have always been true for IT and, and will forever be true. One is the desire for IT to be decentralized. If you think back 50 years, when the mainframe was kind of the only product in IT, that was very much a centralized architecture. We then spent the next 20, 30 years basically decentralizing to things like client server, mobile, the internet. The irony of public cloud, at least in its current form, is that's a complete reversion back to um, centralized architecture. Hey, we got a great IT architecture as long as you do everything in this one place. Um, I think that will revert back again as it always has because IT wants to be decentralized. Um, a big part of our thesis around Red Hat, uh, which I'll get to in a moment, is about providing the next generation of a decentralized architecture, which has to be cloud native. The second thing I think is true is IT wants to be open. I think we've moved beyond the tolerance for businesses to have all of their capabilities be proprietary. And whether it's open standards or open source, that is pretty fundamental to the future of IT. So you take those two things together, decentralized architecture, open source, those are two things that Red Hat is known for, that Red Hat is great at. And mm -hmm. the combination of IBM and Red Hat gives us a chance to realize that vision around a decentralized architecture, which to be specific is around containers, Kubernetes, specifically Red Hat OpenShift. I believe that will be the decentralized architecture for IT in this next generation. The fact that it's done in open source is a bonus. And the fact that everything Red Hat does in open source will be a great driver of cultural change inside of IBM, which I think is a huge positive. So that's the logic. And it really starts with the two fundamental beliefs, decentralized IT architectures, open source, open standards. I tend to agree with you. In fact, I was where you, where you were starting, I was going to challenge you on the cloud. It's just like the old mainframe, but you already hit it there. And, um, you know, I think I think the the natural trans or the natural evolution uh, will be towards decentralization and to be open. I mean, hence open source, etc. The one thing I can't figure out, I don't know if you have a perspective on, because I would have imagined that IoT would have taken off much faster than it has today. You know, if, what's your what, do you have a reason for that? I mean, I would. I mean, we're starting to see some of it come into to fruition, but man, it seems like it's slow. I think this is. Um... Is one of these topics that the fact that we never got a common definition has probably hindered the, the takeoff of it. To me, IoT was always just about connect, collecting data from a variety of sources. And that source could be as, as small as a microchip you know, in a shoe, or it could be as big as a data center. And I think the whole notion of IoT somehow got conflated into... Um, 
I don't know, everything in the world being smart. You know, my refrigerator needs to be smart. Like maybe, I don't know. I'm not sure I really need that. Um, but if you go back to basics, if IoT is fundamentally about connecting to many things, collecting data from everywhere, and using that data to make intelligent decisions, I actually think we've made pretty good progress collectively on that. So I think it's all in the eye of, of how it's defined. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Speaking of refrigerator, it's funny. Everybody comes over to my house, they try to connect to my Wi-Fi, and then they say, dude, I just connected to your refrigerator's Wi-Fi. How, is that the <laughs> one you want me on? Because <laughs> it's got its own, I don't know why it has that. Anyway, hey, um, what is your best client proof points right now? I mean, any examples you could, pro you could provide that kind of is a testament to everything you've said? I think Lufthansa is a great one. Obviously, a huge global airline. Our data science elite team goes in, and in a few weeks, they've got a model up and running that makes the job of their customer service representatives a lot easier to do. Lufthansa is a very small data science team, which is growing, but the AI work we've done with them now supports over 15,000 customer service reps, makes them more effective at their jobs, makes their jobs easier to do. It's a win-win all around. I think, I think that's a great example. Um, I think about companies like Carefor, um, retailer in France, where using Watson AI built models to make predictions on store turnover, how they manage goods in their stores. And, and again, a few weeks time, they're getting 10% better predictions. So this is happening in every industry. We've got countless banking examples Royal Bank of Scotland, Regions Bank, if you're thinking about smaller banks, but I gave you airlines, gave you retailers, like this is happening in every industry and we've got a lot of good stories. Very good. What are your, um, what are the goals or themes you think for 2020 coming back to, uh, I'm starting to surface now, I promise you, <laughs> but uh, I still got a few more questions. Data and AI goals. I mean, even if you were talking to your team right now, what do you say, you know, here are the top three goals that the industry or we got to get right. In terms of AI specifically, there's, there's a few things I see on the horizon. One is what I would call AI for understanding. The technical term would be natural language processing or NLP. Businesses are run by communication, whether that's in the form of email, chat, text, documents, you name it. Having AI that can really understand communication and facilitate that um, will really change businesses. So that's one theme I'd point to. The second theme I'd point to is AI is going to start to build AI. So think of that as automation at scale, where we don't need a human to build every model. AI is good enough to learn from data, to learn from models, to start to, you know, make suggestions, recommendations of models that it could build and then go do that. So AI that builds AI, I would say, is the second theme. Um, third theme, and one that we've now come back to a few times, comes back to trust, which is I think trust will start to be embedded into AI when it's built as opposed to something that's an afterthought, which is, okay, now that we've got AI up and running, we need to do something on it. I think trust will start to be embedded in AI. Those are the three big themes I see for AI. I agree. Trust, explainability, bias. I think that's going to 
be the underpinning of, of decisions made with AI. And I do, I'm pretty proud of where we are right now. Back to the latter day AI. We've been preaching this for some time, collect, analyze, organize, and fuse. It's one of the best strategies I've seen at IBM. It is the best strategy that I've seen at IBM. It's simple. I know some of our folks internally are like, oh, it's back to latter day AI, but look, that's what I want it to be. Because if you can say it in your sleep, I tested somebody the other day and I was making a point that how good the strategy was because you want to make sure it resonates and, and everybody can uh, regurgitate it at, at, at will. The question I have now is, so what's next? I mean, if I'm a customer listening to this and I, I, I'm there and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm following the maturity curve around collect, analyze, organize and infuse, but I'm like, man, how can I, I can, how can I expedite this? How can I, I inject this with steroids? If there's, is there one or two things that you would, uh, one, one or two uh, pieces of guidance, I guess you'd give to our listeners in, in, in a way to, to get up that ladder as fast as possible? One question I ask every client that I visit and really anybody that I talk to, even, you know, going out with friends that my wife and I have on the weekends, you know, folks that work in a variety of different industries, I always ask them a question. I say, Hey, um, you guys have the data that you need to do your job effectively. I don't think anybody's ever said yes. So it's, it's far more basic than AI. But I think I don't even I'm not even thinking about a what's next to the AI ladder because I think we still got so much room to run in terms of self-service analytics, self-service data, ultimately leading to AI, obviously. But I don't talk to a single person that says they have all the data they want to do their job as good as they can. And and until we do, until the, you know, I get eight out of ten yeses at a cocktail party. I'm not going to believe that we're done. So I think this has a long way to run. So it sounds like get your data in order is the first first step, at least in a, in a, in a piece of anything you want to help drive up that ladder. Even if it's a, a compartmentalized piece of data, you got to get it cleaned. You got to get it trusted, et cetera. Absolutely. So let me ask you one off the wall question. I got a free, if, I'll end with a few um, more direct questions. I mean, more personal questions. The one is, is I just seen this in the news and I don't know if you have a perspective on it. I'm still trying to learn about it. And that's the, they're talking about quantum supremacy, you know, and, and IBM is all over the news around quantum computing and, and where that's going to go in 2020. Do you have a perspective? Do you, do you, do you have a prediction there? I don't, yeah. but let me, do, so we don't make the same mistake as IOT. Let me describe quantum in my basic terms. So hopefully we get to a common understanding. The, the history of computer science and building software has been everything's a one or a zero, which is obviously where the term binary comes from. And any logic that you're coding or a rule that you're coding, everything's a one or a zero. So now imagine for a second, if you're listening to this, just imagine a, imagine a sphere. So you're sitting here, you know, there's like a, a solid glass globe on your desk. Imagine a sphere. And the North Pole is a one. The South Pole is a zero. So you've got two different endpoints. Everything's a one or a zero. That's what software has been forever, is everything's a one or a zero. When you move to the world of quantum, suddenly you can instantiate software 
at any point on that sphere, at any point on that glass globe. So it's no longer a one or a zero at North or South Pole. It could be any part of that entire sphere, which obviously you can imagine is infinite. So you could represent things that you could never even imagine in a world that's as simple as a one or a zero when you have an infinite landscape for how you think about building software, designing software. That's why quantum computing will break all the encryption that's ever existed in the world because it's a completely different way of thinking about a problem. I don't know when this becomes mainstream. I talked to our team in research. It feels like 2025, 2030, somewhere in that range. Um, so we're still a ways away. Um, but it's such a hard thing to think about because it's such a dramatic change from anywhere we've we've ever been. Um, it will be interesting to see how this plays out for sure. It's interesting to me. I mean, it's just fascinating. We're, it's like we're going back from, we're going to digital back to analog. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. All right. Hey, look, I'm going to finish, finish up. Um, I do have a few questions I want to ask you. Uh, bear with me. Uh, they're easy. Don't worry. Uh, first one is what are you most proud of in 2019? We, we have built a platform for the first time in a long time in IBM, which is cloud pack for data. And it's changed how we build products, how we sell products, how we market products, how we deploy products. It's changed everything. That is certainly the highlight for me. What's the, the number one item you think is most critical in your mind heading into 2020? If you had to put it on one thing, what would it be? We've done a really good job with the platform. Every platform is driven by the applications, the user experiences, the people that use it. So the path we're going down now with AI applications is critical because it will drive the platform, but it also brings this whole new business audience into the world of AI, which I think is really important. Any, any one personal goal or resolution for 2020 you'd, you're willing to share? Yes. Um, I want to run the New York Marathon. I've done one marathon. Um, I've been wanting to new, do New York. Uh, so that is on my list. I'll have to see if I can stay healthy. Um, but that's number one. Number two is I want to write more. So my goal is to write something three times a month. Um, those are the two big ones in my mind. I have the latter one, the former one. Now you're going to have to train a lot, right? You're ready for that. that that's what you're going to be doing at 530 in the morning? I'm going to ramp up slowly because I don't want to, you know, you get old. It's easier to get hurt. Uh, there's a Dana Carvey skit where he says once, once he turned 40, you know, he can get hurt doing anything. Like if somebody calls his name and he turns too fast, he could be out for a week. Uh, I kind of feel like the same. So uh, I'll, I will gradually work up to the right right level. Yeah, a buddy the other day that I was talking to said he, he, he did a pinched nerve in his neck. I said, well, how the hell did you do that? He goes, I was sleeping last night. That's how I did it. <laughs> Anyway, last five questions, but they're would you rather questions. And in other words, either or. Real simple, right? All right, here they are. Data or AI? You got to be on, you got to pick one. Push on what side of the fence? Data. Data. Tennessee or Florida? Florida, that's easy. I knew that was easy. They put that, my, the producer said that, but I knew you were from Florida. But you, you went to Tennessee, you went to school in Tennessee. They said, well, we got to put it in there anyway. I mean, well, when I hear Florida, Tennessee, I think football, which is an easy Florida one. I do love the state of Tennessee, though, and Nashville is a great city. 
economics or business? Business. Economics is too theoretical. The end of tech companies or big data revolution? <laughs> uh, big data revolution. Oh, interesting. Nice. I know the answer to this. this is a This is a layup as well. Read or watch? I would always go with reading. Uh, I knew that you would. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rob. You're fantastic. Before we close, is there any place that you'd have your listeners, uh, our listeners specifically go to? Twitter's best, Rob D. Thomas. That's where I am. All right. We'll put that in the show notes as well. We'll also put your, your blogs in the show notes and, and a ton of other stuff. Thank you again, Rob, for being here. It's been, it's been great as always. You lived up to the expectations as I knew you would. So thank you. All right, Al. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks again for listening. Please reach out to me on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. As, as for, for now, I'll see you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. See you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.